So the reading today is um, the Gospel of John, John 20, verses 11 to 23, 1089 of the Church Bible. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Madeline went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thank you very much, Lizzie, uh, for reading for us. Um, seeing that picture of Hawaii and Sarah earlier on, and indeed chatting to um, uh, Steve and Emily just now, <clears throat> makes me think... Um, None of us really need persuading. Uh, what a big change. Or indeed seeing Mike there. What a big change uh, the arrival uh, of a new child brings. You know, birth is just a huge transformation, isn't it? Um, certainly is for the person who's been born. Um, but for those around, uh, you know, meal times are different. The clothes that you feel safe wearing are different. Night times are definitely different. Yeah, everything shifts the moment that sort of eight pounds of humanity uh, lands um, in your lives. Birth does that. But then again, so too, uh, if we move to the other end, so too does death. Death brings dramatic transformation. Uh, An arrival brings change, but so does a departure. Not the presence of new life, but the absence of an old one. And the reason that I, that I mentioned those two sort of, those bookends of our human experience is because, in a sense, 
both are central to the, to the two episodes that we are thinking about um, uh, this morning uh, that Lizzie has just read to us. Um, th- there's two little scenes, aren't there, um, there in verses 11 to 23. Um, and did you notice that they both followed a very similar kind of basic shape? Both of them begin with distress. Um, in the first, it's, it's Mary's sorrow. Um, in the second, it's the disciples' fear. And then what comes in the middle is encounter. Uh, one, an encounter in the garden, the other, an encounter in the locked room. Uh, and where it concludes is with a commissioning or a sending. Um, Mary is sent to go to the brothers, by which I think Jesus means the disciples. Um, and then the disciples in due course are sent, well, sent into the world. Um, As the Father has sent me, so I send you, uh, Jesus tells them at the conclusion. So similar shape to the two, which helps us. Um, But then also, both of them share what I think is a pretty puzzling little phrase. Um, A a different one in each, but both of them quite hard to to wrap our heads around. And we'll spend a bit of time thinking about both of those uh, tricky phrases that... um, or tricky things that Jesus has um, to say. So, um, let's, um, let's look at them each in turn. Uh, begin with the first. Um, and what I want to see here um, in this uh, first episode is the way in which the resurrection brings new life. Um, and my accent there is on the word new. Just, just think of Mary for a moment. She has had, she's had quite a morning, hasn't she? Uh, she was first there. Um, up before dawn, um, and in the half-light of dawn, arrives at the tomb. Um, What did she go for? What did she hope to achieve by getting there? Um, I guess she probably didn't even really know. Maybe there were some final touches to to the burial um, and to to the spices to be sorted out, or maybe, like so many people who've been bereaved, she just felt this need to go and be near uh, the graveside. Uh, close to the place where they'd laid the body of the man that she loved. But as she approaches in the half-light, she sees that the, the, the huge stone that was rolled into place in front uh, of uh, the tomb, it, it's been dragged aside. And she fears the worst. She assumes that the body has been stolen, that somebody has wanted uh, uh, the spices, the perfumes, um, that the body would have been wrapped in, worth money. So she runs to tell Peter and John uh, what she has seen. Uh, They race to the tomb uh, and find it as she has said. uh, The stone moved, the tomb empty. But by the time Mary gets back there, travelling slightly more slowly and sedately uh, than Peter and John in their sprint, um, by the time she arrives there, they've long gone. And so she is alone at the tomb. Uh, still weeping, Uh, as we're told in verse 11, she looks into the tomb and sees two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. I'm not entirely sure whether at this stage she recognizes or realizes who they are. Um, Maybe only later uh, the recognition that they are angels uh, dawns upon her. 
Uh, for they ask her why she's crying, she responds in a pretty matter-of-fact kind of way. Uh, if she really understood that this was a conversation with an angel. She just asks them where they've taken the body to. Uh, maybe she assumes that in some way they are associated with the theft that she thinks has taken place. But even as that conversation concludes, she has a sense that there is somebody behind her. Um, did the angels indicate? Or did she hear a noise? Whatever it was, she turns and sees a figure. Uh, and the man stood before her, asks, did you notice? Exactly the same question. Woman, why are you crying? And I can't help thinking that tucked into um, that question is, is kind of gentle rebuke. Um, why are you crying? Don't, don't you get it yet? Don't you see what has happened? And, and as if to reinforce his point, the man asks a second question. Who are you looking for? It's easy to miss, isn't it, the way that Jesus asks the question, who are you looking for? Because she's not looking for a who, is she? She's looking for a what. She's looking for a body. An it. The body. But Jesus asks her, who are you looking for? The penny still doesn't drop. Not until the figure before her says one more word. Mary. And it is enough. Can, can you imagine the moment? Can you in any way try and step into the experience of this woman at that moment? Just last Sunday, um, we were, uh, last Sunday morning, uh, we were looking at the account of Jesus' death, weren't we, if you were here? Um, and it, it wasn't my intention to be, um, to be sort of over-emotional or to be excessively graphic. Um, I was just trying to describe the account of the crucifixion, the things that went on as Jesus died. But even as I did that, uh, I noticed uh, one or two people began to cry. Just at the imagination of what had happened uh, to the one that they loved. If that can happen to a follower of Jesus here, 2,000 years after the events, just, just imagine. Mary didn't have to imagine the events of Jesus' death. She stood there. She watched the nails. She heard the cry. She was there as he breathed his last breath and died. She's wept as you weep when someone you love is gone. And now, the voice that she knows so well speaks her name again. And you can't help wondering, can you, if, if John has in mind 
those verses from, from earlier in the gospel, back in chapter 10, where he tells us, my sheep know my voice. I call them by name and they follow me. Kind of wondering if John isn't linking up this moment with those words from Jesus, Mary. And she knows. Now, does she rush to him and gather him in her arms, or does she fall at his feet and wrap her arms round his legs? Whatever, it draws from Jesus these words that are so puzzling. Do not hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. What, what does he mean by that? It seems slightly odd, doesn't it? I mean, does he mean don't touch me? You know, physical touch now, not appropriate. Um, hard to see that it could be that. Um, because very soon we're going to see that when Thomas isn't at all sure that Jesus could possibly have been risen from the dead um, because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared. Uh, Jesus appears to him and invites Thomas to touch his hands, uh, touch his side. So it can't be that touching is inappropriate. So, so what is it? Don't hold on to me. I think the clue is in the words that follow. That when Jesus says, for I've not yet ascended to the Father... I think he's trying to tell her what happens from here. And I think he's trying to get clear to her that, if you like, this moment, this transforming moment, makes everything different. Um, it's as if Mary is trying to hold on to Jesus, if I can put it like that. Uh, as if she thinks, well, I've got him back now and I'm not letting him go again. She, she's... she's recovered him. She thought she'd lost him and now he's alive again and, and so she wants to hold on to him, to keep him. You could say that Mary is thinking of this almost as if it's a resurrection backwards, if I can put it like that. A resurrection back to the way things were before. Uh, she's got him back just like she had him previously. And you could understand why she would be thinking that, wouldn't you? I mean, she's seen similar things or heard of them. Uh, Jairus' daughter, raised from the dead. Uh, the widow's son in name, uh, taken from the funeral procession itself. Uh, and then um, John records for us uh, the calling of Lazarus out of the grave. So she's, she knows that these extraordinary things seem to be capable of happening uh, around Jesus. And so it's not unreasonable to think, well, now it's happened even to Jesus himself. Got him back to life again. It's a resurrection backwards. Uh, his life has been restored. But Jesus needs her to understand that that's not the way it is. This isn't a resurrection backwards. This is a resurrection forwards. This is a resurrection into a completely new era. Into the resurrection age. Because the, the, the time for Jesus to, to live his incarnate life on earth, that's, that's done now. Now begins his time as the ascended Lord, reigning with his Father in glory. 
And what the Christian faith declares because of this historical event is that a brand new era has begun, nothing less than a resurrection age. And, and, and the body of Jesus resurrected with all of the strangeness of it, that the fact that he's recognized but not recognized, there's something sort of slightly not quite as it was about him. Uh, the fact that he can have the wounds and yet not be wounded. That he can appear in the locked room in the next instant, in a moment. That there's something shifted about this new existence. He is like the first fruits of the resurrection era. The anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to bring into existence. And the Christian faith, to to be a Christian believer, means believing that in an astonishing way we can be caught up in this. That, as it were, the death that Jesus dies can by faith be our death. That, That with it, that this mortal life corrupted by our rebellion against God, can come to an end. And by faith, his resurrection life can be our new life. We can rise with him to join him in this resurrection age, to to, to have a part of it in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it means all of this matters. It means that there is a creator who made things, and there is a creator who is going to remake things in the new heavens and the new earth that we're not living out some sort of cosmic accident. You know, sort of quirk of, uh, of, of big bangs that has no meaning. We're just accidental creatures who will live for a while and then be burnt up um, in some other cosmic accident still to come. No, because of this event, because of this prospect, that Jesus begins with this resurrected life, this first fruits. Everything matters. Creation matters. Our lives matter. I think that's why Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Because you can't have me back the way things were before. No, 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 something far better, something far more glorious. And it's to do with the ascension. It's to do with me going before you into glory and that I can take you with me to glory when you believe in me. And this extraordinary event produced the most radical shift um, in people's understanding of Jesus. I mean, you think up to this point, Jesus had a small band of followers, didn't he? Uh, All of whom abandoned him uh, at the critical moment. Just a little band Um, who had accompanied him through these few years of his ministry. Um, But overnight, Jesus became the object of worship. Almost kind of in an instant, people began to speak of Jesus as God, equating him uh, with Yahweh. Now, how did that happen? How did thousands suddenly start doing that? Because it's hard for us to get our minds around it because we're not Orthodox Jews. But Orthodox Jews are pretty clear about one thing, that God is one. And he is Yahweh the Lord. 
And yet, kind of in an instant, thousands are declaring their belief in Jesus as God. Now, a kind of a radical theological shift in a people group doesn't happen instantly like that. You know, it happens gradually. You, you could trace it through history as somebody starts to make some new theological ideas um, and other people disagree with them. Um, and then they push back and the, and the debate goes on for a few decades. And then gradually you can see the shift in a people group's understanding uh, moving to its new place. That's not what happens here. In an instant, a, a new belief emerges out of nowhere. How do you explain that unless the resurrection explains it? So first, the resurrection means new life. This new order of things. Um, And then secondly, um, in the second incident, we we see the way which the resurrection means forgiveness. Uh, There are the disciples. Um, they're, they're, They're in an upper room. Um, maybe it's the same upper room where um, they shared the Last Supper with Jesus. Um, and the door is locked because they're frightened of the Jewish leaders. Uh, they've seen what happened to Jesus and they are fearful uh, that the same could happen to them. Because even though Mary has reported what she saw and, uh, and, and tried to tell them that she'd seen Jesus alive, clearly they are not persuaded. They are frightened men. And suddenly something happens that that only raises their level of fear. Into their midst, suddenly, right in the middle of them, uh, a figure is standing. Uh, And I imagine the level of consternation as a figure arrives in the middle of a locked room uh, only raised the level of fear and anxiety and dread. It's no surprise that Jesus' first words are, peace be with you. I should imagine there was not a lot of that um, in the room at that instant. Because the man that they saw die is there, turning his hands open to them, inviting them to look at the marks of the nails, the mark of the spear in his side. A man with mortal wounds, yet so very clearly alive before them. And again, instant transformation. The mood moves from fear Two, we're told, uh, the disciples being overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And, and this too, a really hard thing to understand and to explain any other way. How did a bunch of frightened men become fearless leaders? How did this motley crew of uneducated fishermen and the like launch a religious movement? that has expanded to every corner of the globe. How did it happen? What took place in first century Palestine to explain the birth of the Christian church? I mean, do you think that they were deceived? You know, they wanted it so badly that they just managed to imagine it for themselves. You know, I so want Jesus back again that they began to sort of hallucinate and, and then it sort of spread like some sort of... Um, Uh, some sort of communicated, hallucinatory experience. I mean, it's pretty far-fetched to imagine that. 
the, the accounts that they've written don't read like that. They don't sound like sort of ethereal visions. They sound like solid bodily encounters. And besides which, these men weren't expecting, anticipating a resurrection. It clearly hadn't dawned on them that that's what was going to happen. So if it wasn't sort of a wishful thinking and a kind of hallucination, if they weren't deceived, perhaps they were deceivers. Was this all an elaborate hoax? Did they steal the body, hide it away somewhere, construct some sort of elaborate story about Jesus riding from the dead, um, and then perpetrate the most colossal deception? It's a pretty hard thing to believe that, isn't it? Not least when these men died for their faith. Die for a hoax? It is really hard to find a better explanation for the birth of the Christian church uh, than that this most extraordinary of things took place. A man rose from the dead. Which means that Jesus is who he said he was and that he can do what he promises to do. And, and that's captured in, in the second of the puzzling phrases. That's there in verse 22. When we read that with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Whenever we encounter death, um, we soon discover that it's not just, it's not just the, the loss uh, of the person dear to us, but, but there is with that the sense of the wrongness of this loss, the sense that it shouldn't be like this, that these close relationships that matter to us so much shouldn't end this way, shouldn't be interrupted and no longer part of our experience. It feels wrong. It feels inappropriate. It feels uh, unbearably not the way it should be. Yet what lies behind that experience of it shouldn't be like this is a still greater loss, greater than the physical loss of a person is the spiritual loss that is tucked behind the loss of relationship with God. That, that's what death is capturing for us. Because woven into human experience is a neglect of God and indeed a rebellion against God that leads to the most terrible of losses, the loss of relationship with our Creator. It's the loss of all losses, isn't it? To be separated from the one who made you the one who determined the very purpose of your being, to, to be out of touch with him has to be the loss of all losses. To be separated from him for all eternity. And therefore, do you see the significance of Jesus' words? Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. The resurrection presents us with one who is able to deal with that neglect and rebellion against God. 
to deal with our greatest loss, in other words, to deal with our disconnection from our Creator. I don't think Jesus is, is giving to, to this little band of disciples, however many of them were there in that upper room, some sort of special privileged position that nobody else has ever had. I think he is just telling them that this is what they will do with this gospel message. This is what will happen because they will speak to people about Jesus who died and rose again. That he can do this. And when they speak that message and people believe it, then sin is forgiven relationship is restored but when they speak that gospel message and people will not have it sin is not forgiven and relationship is not restored Christians have always proclaimed that stark reality I mean have we got this have we seen this have we seen the way that these central events of the Christian faith open up for each one of us a resurrection forwards. Do you see that? That to be a Christian believer is to be caught up in the new thing that God is doing, the new creation that God is establishing. That's what resurrection means. And and in a sense, as we finish, I, I want to ask us to hear again the question that Jesus asks. Who are you looking for? You know, if you're here, trying to work out what you make of the Christian faith. Who are you looking for? But if you're here as a Christian believer, who are you looking for in Jesus? Are you you looking for a, a spiritual comfort blanket? Someone just to make you feel a little bit better? Are you looking for a solver of theological puzzles? because your intellect is a bit troubled and you'd like him to to help sort those out? Are you looking for a teacher who will be a bit of a guide for you through life, give you some hints and direction? Can I say to you that Jesus will not be any of those to you? That's not what he wants to be. That's not what he will be. Jesus would be our saviour. He would be the forgiver of our sins. He would be the first fruits of the new resurrection life. He would be the giver to you of new birth itself. That's what he would be to you. And maybe some of us need to pinch ourselves and remember the scale of what it is that we believe when we say we're Christian believers and renew our commitment uh, to this man who would be our saviour. Let's get the the band back up to the front if we may because we're going to sing again in a moment a couple of songs to finish. Um, And let me lead us in a prayer that this, this great resurrection event Uh, would speak to us uh, powerfully uh, of the new thing, the new birth that God has brought. Uh, Father God, we uh, we do praise you that at the the heart of the Christian faith are these historical events. Um, So many of us um, sat here this morning, I guess, uh, maybe began 
our exploration uh, of Christ uh, by going to this, these resurrection accounts and unable to find any other way of explaining the transformation that took place here, uh, slowly began uh, to realize uh, that Christ rose from the dead, a resurrection forwards into the new era uh, that you were establishing through his work. Uh, Father, press upon us uh, the, the, the joy that it is, uh, the honor that it is, um, and the great responsibility that it is uh, to be caught up uh, with Christ. Uh, to die with him and be raised with him. And to become those who, uh, like these first disciples, uh, you send into the world uh, to speak of these glorious things. Uh, strengthen us uh, for all of this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.